0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The one quote that everybody knows from Vladimir Putin is what he told the federal assemblies on, in November 2005, quote, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tra- tragedy of the 20th century. That's, the, that's the, the quote that everyone knows. However, people forget the first half of that sentence. Because what Putin actually said was, for the millions of Russians who found themselves trapped outside the borders of their homeland, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. I mean, that's really important difference. It's really important because he's talking about those Russians, those poor Russians that that he kind of as the savior of Russians and you know the uniter of the Slavic peoples. It is now now his mission to. To save them.
0: Hi, everyone. This is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am really excited to have on the show Owen Matthews for his latest book, Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine. Owen is an award-winning correspondent, historian, and fluent Russian speaker. He has lived and worked in Moscow for over 25 years. He has built up an unrivaled network of contacts who have worked in Putin's administration, security services, armed forces, and propaganda machine, and worked first as a staffer for the Moscow Times and then as Newsweek Magazine's Moscow Bureau Chief. He currently contributes regularly to Foreign Policy, Spectator, Daily Mail, Telegraph, and The Critic. His book, Overreach, which we're talking about today, won the Pushkin House Book Prize, was a Telegraph Book of the Year, and it was shortlisted for the Parliamentary Book Awards. Owen, how are you doing
1: today? Hi, very well. Thanks for having me on, AJ.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for for joining me. And I really love having people who are writing about Russia, Ukraine on this show. Uh, we've had a few others. We were talking. I had Serhii Plohi on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Gagliotti was on. Uh, Christopher Miller, lots of lots of other people who are writing about the war. And I'm always so grateful for them to, to come on. So so thank you for talking about this very urgent and relevant topic right now. One of the first questions I like to ask people when they come on the show and, and talk about their book is, in your own words, what is your book about?
1: It's about the beginning, the origins, and the first uh, year of the Russian-Ukraine war. But um, I guess the uh, unique selling point, the thing that I tried to concentrate on was the origins of the war in terms of what happened in the Kremlin and what happened in Vladimir Putin's circle. And to the extent that we can know it, what what happens in what happened inside Vladimir Putin's head. Because there have been lots of, uh, and there will be even more, lots of fantastic books about the war written from the Ukrainian side with lots of great rap- reportage and so on. But uh, for me, when I conceived this book, it was pitched in—you uh, know—in I put together the book proposal in the, the first month of the war, in 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 March of uh, of of twenty two, and what I realized was that there's going to be lots of books about the the the, the progress of the war, but in many ways, Ukraine is not really the story of the origins of the war. Ukraine is sort of weirdly peripheral to why this happened. It's really a Moscow story. It's uh, a tale of a particular confluence of circumstances, of paranoias, of misinformation, of delusions, of opportunism and personal politics. And all of those things happen in the Kremlin and in Moscow. So the intent of the book was really to explain why the war happened. Uh, I worked in Russia for 25, uh, well, for about half of the 25 years that I worked for Newsweek, I was uh, in Russia uh, as Moscow correspondent, then as Moscow bureau chief. And until um, until the outbreak of the war, I used to go uh, at least every month or every couple of months to Moscow for work purposes, basically. And uh, after the war broke out, I went three times. Most lately, that most um, my last trip was uh, ended in October of 22. So I have not been back for a year. But until that point, I was going back very regularly.
0: And so, what was it that, that made you think I got to write this book? I got to get. I got to. I have to let people know. I've. I've got to get this out. What, what was it that sparked this book for you?
1: Well, I realized that actually by dint of seniority, (laughs) in other words, by just having been in Russia for a very long time, uh, I actually find myself knowing a lot of uh, people who, as the Russians say, are the pridilach. I mean, they they are certainly not in the inner circle of Kremlin power, but through various uh, journalistic work, I had quite a large network of, you know, I would say second rank people, uh, you know, uh, by which I mean sort of heads of Duma committees, you know, uh, uh, regional governors, heads of, you know, uh, members of uh, the upper house of the the Russian parliament's uh, uh, foreign policy and security committees. Uh, I knew quite a lot of uh, soldiers from Chechnya who had uh, now become general officers um i found myself sort of curiously well connected in among um Moscow media executives and uh, and so on and so forth uh, i i'm i'm not boasting this is basically what happens to every foreign correspondent when you spend literally a quarter of a century <laughs> reporting sure. on a country your contacts <laughs> kind of suddenly you know all kind of become senior and interesting so i realized that that i did have a certain amount of critical mass of people who i could talk to about sort of what what actually happened. And I also realized that there were going to be uh, a lot of analytical books. Uh, in fact, I quite often get, you, uh, get uh, asked to review them, and including for the uh, London Review of Books, I got a gigantic box of Russia books. There's like every year produces a box of Russian <laughs> books. But I thought, that and they're mostly fantastically boring i won't mention many names but like you know there's a lot of very turgid sort of international relations style writing that's being done about about russia and and it's not very digestible it's not very relatable so because i um i i studied history at university and i've written several history books i decided to actually take to do two things that you don't necessarily always conventionally get in these kind of political books. And that was to add a journalistic element, which was uh, my own reporting and other people's reporting about you know a series of individuals who uh, illustrate the various different points uh, of the story, and also a historical uh, introduction, because actually the poisoned root of this conflict is actually history and uh, that sort of violent shared history is is not just context it's actually sort of vital to understanding of the understanding of this conflict so um so it's it's, it's not just a politics book it's not just a sort of journalistic book it's it, it's uh, and it's not just a history book it's a little bit of a mix of all three
0: yeah in uh talking about your reporting you write about how when the war broke out you had a very tough time getting people to speak to you um, even friends, um, in Ooh. Russia talk about, describe that. What, what's it, what was it like to be a reporter in Russia, trying to get information about this war and, and what was going on?
1: Well, the curious thing was basically nobody that I knew, uh, I was in Moscow, uh, just before the war broke out and, uh, and, uh, just immediately after it broke out the, uh, before the war broke out, I spent. Uh, New Year's and January and so on in in, in Russia, and there, obviously there's a lot of tension and build up and diplomacy and so on. Pretty much nobody that I knew in Russia in terms of contacts or friends had any idea or no one believed that there was actually going to be a war. Basically, the better informed the contact, the more adamant they were that the heavy metal diplomacy, that the, the, the heavy metal... You know, was the bluff and the diplomacy was the real play. Literally, everybody thought that. You know, from the you know heads of of government channels to you know people who are sort of close to Sergey Lavrov, you know, foreign ministry people, to you know government people, people who have been the sort of you know former ministers and so on. The, the complete consensus of informed opinion in Russia was that it's not going to happen, and then suddenly bam, it happens. So everyone is completely thrown for a loop by this.
0: That's so interesting, because in Ukraine, it's the same situation. uh, that You write about the president doesn't believe, President Zelensky doesn't believe an invasion is going to happen. A lot of his inner circle also doesn't believe uh, that's going to happen. So it's interesting that both sides, with the exception of Putin and his very close circle, nobody actually thought that this war was going to happen
1: i mean I, I there's 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 a there's a small qualification to that is that quite a lot of people believed that there was going to be a limited offensive that putin was going to go and tear, at least occupy the rebel republic of the donbass so you know but literally nobody anticipated they were going to do a full scale invasion and go for for kiev i mean that was a really very well kept secret but by, but but uh, just to answer your original question the Kremlin's actions just threw everybody for a loop, and uh, in the first weeks of the war, uh, there was a lot of you know uh, the Russians were very gung ho uh, about taking Kiev in, in in three days. Then it was a week, and then you know the the but the effect of this very sudden and violent move on the Kremlin's part on the Russian elite was to suddenly signal that the old rules were broken you know the old rules of what you could say who you could talk to and the u- new rules were not yet clear not not yet written you know we found ourselves suddenly and abruptly in a world where the kremlin could suddenly do something as crazy and unexpected as suddenly mount a full scale invasion of ukraine and that has all kinds of ramifications in the minds of people Whose lives and livelihoods and careers and so on are intimately linked to their good relations with the Kremlin? That le- that led to questions. You know, what else are they going to do? You know, what? Uh, you know, are we going back to you know some kind of Stalinist or Brezhnev era rules of the 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 foreigners are dangerous? You can't talk to foreigners and so on. So just you know, you asked about how that works as a reporter people contacts just sort of for for a period got extremely nervous about talking to foreigners and they uh and uh i i had to get quite devious actually i mean i i ended up uh well it was it's not it's not exactly rocket science but i would basically like get mutual friends to like you know invite that person who you know to give an example i call them mutual friends like can you invite this guy general x and me, and we'll just like you know meet at the dacha, and you know we'll have a like a sort of you know we'll, we'll 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 all get drunk, and you know then we can have a sort of little chat, you know
0: social without the other person knowing that you were going to be there.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, but he but on the other hand, you know he does know that I'm a journalist, and you know but but you right. know when you're there around the table, it's not an interview; it's a social, and the corollary of that so 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 there were lots of permutations of that kind of thing like sort of meeting people socially and going to dinners and and getting other people to connect us in a social way so you know there's and that was very good for all kinds of you know gossip and tidbits and so on however there's a major problem with that journalistically and that is as you're probably aware I mean when you're you know, in order to quote someone on the record, you have to identify yourself as a journalist, you have to ask them for their permission that, uh, you know, that the, their comments are on the record. You know, if you're just talking to somebody in a social situation, then, you know, that's essentially pretty much by definition, you know, non attributable. People don't really know the difference between, you know, background and, you know, off the record and so on. But uh, but, but regardless of uh, of all of those sort of journalistic niceties, the 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 upshot of it is, that there's lots of there's far more anonymous sources than I would really like and I'm very than I'm comfortable with. Uh, and unfortunately I um I mean we, we, we you know the reader's just gonna have to live with that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean you know say I just made all those people up. I mean well I you know as it happens I didn't but you know it's it, it's it's always an uncomfortable thing to have to ask the readers to trust you on anything. And uh American newspapers and magazines I, I work you know i worked for the american press for most of my career 25 years at newsweek and you know they, they are american newspapers are and magazines are justifiably very nervous about uh anonymous sources because not not only well not not really for the reason because that they think the journalists make them up that i don't think that, that, that very rarely happens that journalists just invent stuff the the major problem with anonymous sources is when someone is not answering for their own words then it's much easier for them to mislead you that's that's really the reason why it's a it's a it's a difficult thing uh, to anonymize sources anyway the, the, but um the atmosphere in moscow was very strange it was one of nervousness about you know whether mass repression was going to begin because actually it didn't really begin uh, there was no Immediate mass repression inside Russia in the first weeks of the war, but there were uh, everyone was extremely nervous about things, you know, extraordinary things that has that, that might happen. You know, the war already an extraordinary thing happened. You know, could another extraordinary thing like a general mobilization happen? Well, possibly. Could the closing the borders happen? Well, possibly. So, in that kind of, in that kind of, uh, suddenly this. Uh, as the Russians say, the 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 war sort of broke like a thunderbolt over a sort of otherwise otherwise sort of unsuspecting bourgeois life of Moscow.
0: Yeah, well, uh, before we dive into um, some of the the content in your book, just a, a bit about your background, because not only professionally did you work and in, in cover Russia, but you actually have uh, family connections uh, in Russia. What, what what are your family ties to Russia?
1: Well, uh, as I, I I I spent my whole life telling people that my mother's a Russian from Kharkov, but in fact that's become an extremely politically incorrect thing to say because when my mother, who's still with us, is, was born in 1934, Kharkov was the head of the it was the capital of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, and Kharkov remains in Ukraine, but it is a largely Russian speaking city so my mother's family was came from had a quite a long historical historical connection uh with with ukraine and uh i do go into it at some length not because people's family histories are intrinsically uh interesting usually it's quite exactly the opposite but in this particular case with my mother's family they they are illustrative of something kind of quite important and that is essentially two things is you know, an absolutely unambiguously imperial relationship between Russia and Ukraine, and also how closely intertwined that relationship is. So specifically, the first uh, ancestor of mine that we know of went to what is today Ukraine in 1783 in the entourage of uh, Catherine II of the Emperors, and he was this uh, this guy's father had been the Commander in chief of the Russian Imperial Army. And his young son accompanies the Empress on her progress through the newly kind of annexed lands of South Russia. So, I mean, it's really just its empire. You know, unambiguously, it's an imperial project to annex, you know, a fundamentally alien part of, of, of what is essentially a foreign country the Tatars of Crimea. But as for the rest of what is now Crimea, particularly like the Donbass, was actually, it gets more complicated, it gets more ambiguous, because you have in the west of Ukraine, you know, uh, unambiguously Ukrainian-speaking, homogenous, non-russian culture in the far west of ukraine in the east of ukraine you have a sort of wild somewhat analogous to what happens a century later in america you have, basically have sort of the wild west situation it's, it's settled by the emperors and going forward this guy this guy's great nephew is my six seven times great grandfather was governor of kiev under nicholas the uh I'm sorry to report a famous anti-semite and anti-Ukrainian but you know yeah. his job was literally to administer Kiev for the the Russian Empire. So again like it's you know generations and generations it's, it's 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 a long story but the very short version is the family of the Bibikovs is interesting because they you know seven generations of them live um, you know live and die in Ukraine. They go back and forth to St Petersburg. They do not in any way, consider themselves to be Ukrainians. So, in that sense, um, the but nonetheless, the neither do they do they consider the, the 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 Ukraine which they're administering, and very importantly, the the last and most interesting member of this family is my grandfather Boris Bibikov, who becomes an enthusiastic Bolshevik, and although he would hate that comparison. Hate this comparison. Uh essentially what he's doing for Stalin um as the builder, one of the builders of the Hharkov Tractor Factory, one sort of the major showpieces of industrialization and collectivization in 1929 to so 1931 is when the Hardkov Tractor Factory is built. He's essentially doing the same thing for the Soviet Empire as you know his ancestors had done for the Russian Empire. And by the way, I should add, he gets shot in 1937 because he opposes uh, Stalin and is horrified by the by, 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 the, by the starvation that, that the first five-year plan has wrought. So, you know, ultimately he ends up on the side of the angels. But um, while it's an imperial relationship, it's also not the same kind of rela- imperial relationship as, you know, Britain and India. It's much it's more similar to, you know, England and Ireland or England and Scotland. Or England and Scotland is actually a much better example, because you have, throughout the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, a you know essentially interchangeable elite. You know lots of major bureaucrats and statesmen go from Kiev to St Petersburg and may have glittering careers in the court of Catherine the Second and throughout the nineteenth century, and the other way around. You know lots of Russian noblemen come to. Ukraine and feel themselves, you know, as, as imperial administrators, governors, you know, Pushkin and so on. Um, you know, they they all feel themselves completely at home. And so the the elites are interchangeable between Kiev and 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 St Petersburg without feeling that they're in in a, in a different country. Anyway, all that to say that yes, I do have a, a Russian, or well, in fact Ukrainian. I, it's complicated, uh, yeah, <laughs> part of my family, but uh, and 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 that history is illustrative of something that's really. Um, that's really important in my story, and that is uh and it kind of what makes this war so vicious and bitter i mean it's you know it's a family struggle it's not a neighborly struggle you know it's not it's it's not um Germany invading Poland or france it's it's like it's close. And 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 that's uh, and that that's one of the one of the elements and one of the ambiguities of this war, and it's one of the misunderstandings on which Putin, of course, built his premise on the war. Because Putin, fundamentally, at base, if you were to see, you know, point to any kind of, you know, the the, the absolute root of root causes about his attitudes to Ukraine, Putin's atti- attitudes to Ukraine, he doesn't believe that Russian-speaking Ukrainians are Ukrainian basically. He thinks well, they just to, like Russians with an accent.
0: I was about to ask you if you had to, I think I've asked most of the the people on the show who are, who are writing about Russia, this question, it, it's an unanswerable question, and or maybe it's answerable, but it, it would take a long time. If you had to boil this down to like one moment that caused the Russia-Ukraine war, I was going to ask what you would, how you would answer that. It sounds like you just partially did, but would would you have anything to add to that
1: well that's not really a moment i mean it, it's it's the fundamental premise on which the war is it, it has has been fought is that putin genuinely believes that these people are russian i mean he you know he said the other day literally yesterday he said odessa is a russian city and a little bit jewish but basically it's a russian city i mean he thinks that all of eastern ukraine is is not ukrainian uh, and and one of the weird paradoxes and uh, and things that are very often forgotten is that both in his in Putin's sort of slightly wacky but very interesting historical essay that he writes, plus in his in you know, a fateful speech that he gives, you know, right at the beginning of the war, in both of those speeches and doc- and documents, he goes out of his way to say, you know, I, you know, I respect Ukrainian statehood and Ukrainian culture, except he doesn't consider. That the east of Ukraine is part of that culture. So there's a big, uh, you know, one of the big debates, which I'm sure we can get on in more detail, but uh, that is, a, you asked me for one basic fundamental <laughs> moment. The fundamental premise is that he doesn't think that most Ukrainians are Ukrainian, he thinks they're just sort of species of Russians. The moment I think that war really becomes inevitable i think possibly actually the it's earlier than most people think it's the moment that in october 2019 when a very crucial thing does not happen in eastern ukraine this is going to take this is going to require three sentence explanation in october 2019 the newly elected president of Ukraine, Vladimir Volodymyr Zelensky, does a deal with the rebel republics of Donbass to hold a referendum. It's a key. Uh, it's a key condition of the um, of the of uh, uh, the Minsk Accords to hold a referendum on whether they're going to have their old status within Ukraine or whether they're going to have uh, a special status. Obviously, they're all going to vote for special status. Uh, And this vote is going to be under the supervision of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. If that vote had happened in October 2019, there would not be a war today. The reason it didn't happen was that there was an extremely strong, vehement opposition from Ukrainian ultranationalists, Particularly from Azov, uh, who were electorally tiny, insignificant vote uh, proportion of of the Ukrainian population, but nonetheless they are armed. They are all veterans, and they came out on the streets and said, "We're going to make another Maidan and kick you out of power and kill you." They literally threatened Zelensky's life if he went went ahead with the vote on the grounds that blood has been spilled. You know, we 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 cannot allow this compromise. So if you're asking for one moment when this war tipped from possibility into probability, it was that moment when Zelensky completely failed to, in his attempts to reincorporate the rebel republics of the Donbass back into Ukraine. And that also signaled a moment when all of the Kremlin's diplomacy from 2014 right up to 2019 had always been to insist that the Donbass was part of Ukraine, that was the official Kremlin line, it's definitely part of Ukraine, and to, you know, try and reincorporate those rebel pro-Russian areas back into Kiev. Now, you know, to readers that have not been doing sort of, you know, been elbow deep in all this sort of backstory, that sounds crazy, like, you know, What are we talking about? Like, really? Like, Putin thought that Donbass was part of Ukraine? Yes, he definitely did. He said it like five million times. So what changed? What changed was until 2019, Putin has a strategy to get all those pro-Russian guys from the Donbass, from the east of Ukraine, back into Kiev politics to mess them up, to use a very polite term. But you know, he wants those guys like, you know, in the tent, you know d- doing their their pro-Russian thing in Kiev. That's his strategy to prevent Kiev from drifting off into NATO and and the EU and all that. Do you think and this is what in October one... 2019 that strategy fails? Like that's not going to happen. We're gonna to have to go to plan B. So what is so plan B ends up being, you know, we actually just have to occupy it now.
0: Do you think that this is one of those moments in history where <clears throat> Where looking back, we should have known that that this war was was brewing, given um, Putin's historical. We, we were talking about the essay that he wrote, given his historical attitude towards Ukraine, given his invasion of of um, Georgia and of Crimea, um, given what you were just talking about. Do you think we should have been as surprised as we were when he invaded Ukraine?
1: Uh. No, I, I don't think is that uh, I, I definitely don't think there's anything inevitable about it. Furthermore, I think that the, the question is 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 littered with uh, I, the, the question in some ways answers itself because if you you know the 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 easy narrative is to say you know he's an imperialist you know his country has you know historical form on invading its neighbors you know he's just written what lo- reads a lot like the, an imperialist manifesto and so on. And, you know, he's already invaded a foreign country in the form of Georgia. Therefore, obviously, you know, you know Ukraine is next on, on, on the list. And um, Therefore, you know, you're an idiot if you didn't think that, you know, if you didn't expect him to, 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 to take a chunk out of, out, of, out of Ukraine because he's an inveterate imperialist. I mean, this is basically what, you know, all Poles and all Bolts tell me. I had a big debate with Radek Sikorsky. Former foreign minister of Poland about this, and this is his point: like you know, you're an idiot. We warned you. However, I I kind of disagree about with that log with that logic. One chronologically, two thousand eight, he invades Georgia, uh, and then. He does indeed actually invade Georgia properly, but he invades. What he does is he occupies uh, two breakaway territories of Georgia that have declared themselves to be independent of Georgia in nineteen ninety two to three after after the fall of the Soviet Union. Does he annex Abkhazia and South Ossetia, those Georgian breakaway republics? He does not. Putin, who's supposedly an imperialist, right? Like his whole agenda is exp- expanding the Russian Empire. He should. You know, incorporate those territories into Russia, but he doesn't. But for a really simple reason, because there's there's no Russians there. There's like Abkhaz there and the South Ossetians there, and I mean they happen to be Christian, but you know they're not Russians. And you know the, this this historical essay, you know, is it's you you could read it as an imperialist manifesto, but I don't think it is an imperialist manifesto. What it is is an appeal. I mean, basically a sort of you know historically somewhat dubious but the thrust of it is not that uh, moscow is the inevitable imperial master of ukraine it's that ukrainian ukraine and russia should be friends because we are supposedly kind of one people and therefore you know we should not let the americans divide us and by the way he also says that he has you know respect for Ukrainian culture and for Ukrainian language and people and so on. But, you know, the, it's not, I think it's a misreading of Putin to call him uh, an imperialist in the sense that, you know, he's just going to continue consuming the entirety of Ukraine and then move on to the Baltics and Poland and so on. Uh, I think that's a misreading. I think uh he's not an imperialist I think he's an ethno nationalist so that sounds like a completely sort of nonsense you know hair splitting international relations kind of jargon thing but actually it's it has really it has an an important real world significance uh because if he is just a mad imperialist and he, you know then 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 we have to deal with him in some ways in one way if his notional mission is just to you know, save the Russians of that 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 are caught inside Ukraine. You know, from Nazis. You know, in Kiev. Then that's a different that's that's a different story. That's a much more limited um, as much more limited sort of scope. Uh, and you may ask, well, if he was just talking about rescuing the people of Eastern U- Ukraine, why did he try and invade Kiev? <laughs> so there's an easy answer to that: is that the the intention of Going for Kiev was, I think, it's pretty clear that he didn't intend to seize Kiev and hold Kiev. It was essentially just a massively aggravated coup, an armed coup, and it's pretty clear that he was he intended to install Viktor Medvedchuk, his favorite oligarch, the guy who'd been putting all these sort of lies into his head about how the Russians, Russian speakers of eastern ukraine were just dying to be liberated from zelensky and from fascism and so on uh, entirely self-servingly cuz it happens not to be true but the uh, it was really about you know regime change in kiev and then you know probably occupying what he regarded as you know the as russian 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 areas in 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 Donbass and zaporozhye but just to finish up on the, on, on the whole uh, motivation part, uh, the, like the imperialist part, in imperialism question, the one quote that everybody knows from Vladimir Putin is what he told the federal assemblies on, in November 2005, quote, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tra- tragedy of the 20th century. That's the, that's the, the quote that everyone knows. However, people forget the first half of that sentence, because what Putin actually said was, for the millions of Russians who found themselves trapped outside the borders of their homeland, comma, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. I mean, that's really important difference. It's really important because he's talking about those Russians, those poor Russians that, that he kind of as the savior of Russians and, you know, the uniter of the Slavic peoples, you know, it's his, now, now his mission to, to save them.
0: So- that was the first time that I had ever heard that when, when you wrote about that, you're right. That, that never gets mentioned with that statement, although it is his most famous quote. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised to, to read that. Another thing that that surprised me, just talking a little bit about Putin because I've always felt like I've never quite gotten a grasp on how, how Putin is is viewed. Um, I mean, I know a lot of, obviously, he's, he's very popular. But you, you write about how, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, uh, Putin's real attraction in Russia is that he's just like everybody else, but a little bit smarter. Mm. Um, he's the everyman, mm. but just like a, a little bit more than that talk a little bit uh about those perceptions of yeah. Putin.
1: Well, I mean I, I I don't think it's 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 an incredible leap for uh many of your American listeners uh or to I was thinking the
0: same. <laughs> when I read that it's I thought like, the same you know, thing.
1: get their minds around <laughs> this concept of like you know sort of the you know sort of Mr. 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 ordinary guy, you know goes yeah. to what, you know Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I mean, you know Putin you know the the, the, the Putin is it's very. Putin is is a populist, as much as a dictator. He, he's he's in fact. I mean, he's he's an authoritarian leader, but he doesn't rule through terror. Primarily, I mean, he uses. A bit of terror. I mean, frankly, in terms of you know the scale, it's you know very few people have been put in jail for significant. I mean, it's kind of horrific that they have that anyone has been. But you know the 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 actual application of. I mean, we're not talking about nineteen thirty seven. The actual application of like state force and violence, it's kind of it's very small. It's very limited. It's very dastardly. I mean, they they apply it very precisely to silence opposition, but it's not through coercion that he rules it's through an appeal to russian every person and that was the secret of his success he made people prosperous he sort of spoke their their language he reassured them and he was you know the 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 sort of safe safe steady pair of hands which of course is a little bit different from the trump phenomenon because you know know, trump claims to be sort of you know draining the swamp and and going against the washington you know uh machine and so on but the 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 similarity is that he has you know his his appeal is very much to you know ordinary people ordinary people's concerns and to um and you know to present himself as in, you know, rather down to earth. Weirdly, savior. He's you know, he doesn't wear fancy uniforms. He doesn't sort of you know, he he's he's not like Idi Amin or you know, he's actually kind of always in a in his boring suit. He always has his, his shy smile. You know, there's actually not very much imperial pomp to his public image.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the the accounts that that you write about in your book. So, you you've got accounts from people who are inside, um, like the, the the Kremlin and inside the Russian propaganda machine. what What's important to you about these accounts? What surprised you, and, and what do we have to learn from them?
1: Well, in terms of, I mean, inside the Kremlin, I just have one sort of somewhat juicy piece of gossip, and that was the from somebody who had lunch with, you know, uh, someone who's known Putin personally for 20 years, who had lunch with the... Uh, with Dmitry Piskoff, Putin's spokesman, on the Monday after the f- fateful Security Council meeting followed by war. And he just told me, this person just told me a couple of juicy tidbits, is that according to Piskov, the participants of that Security Council meeting, you know, where they all you know sit in the hall and, and, and tell Vladimir Putin you know, reasons why they agree with him, it's all sort of very sort of spooky and strange, and and and, 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 a, and a bit a bit uh, and a sort of a bit Brezhnevian. Um, they it's a sort of performative sort of rituals of of obedience and of sort of Putin showing off. So, so, so the the, the tidbit of information that I have is that all the people there were told that it was going out live, but it wasn't. They were just lied to. This is supposedly the 21 most powerful people in Russia. They were just lied to because you can see from their watches that, that, that it's pre-recorded. Secondly, and most importantly, um, the only four people in the room knew the actual full plan. So that's including, so literally the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, did not know that there was a full plan to invade Kiev. You know, there was only, it was only uh, Nikolai Patrashev, the head of the Security Council, Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the FSB. Putin himself, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the de- defense minister. Uh, it's not even and, and uh, sorry, and, and Sergei Narushkin, who's the head of foreign intelligence, plus Putin himself. So you know, so, so so in in terms of sort of inside gossip, that's just my little sort of piece of inside gossip. In terms of what's what's going on in the, in the propaganda machine, it's really interesting. Uh, what's interesting about that is literally nobody in the state propaganda apparatus had any warning that there was going to be a full-scale invasion and uh, it is indeed tr- you know it, it's it's an interesting and sort of slightly unusual and n- not not exactly what one one would expect the workings of the state propaganda uh, not precisely what you would expect so it's not like you know there's like a sort of an email that goes out to everyone, or there's you know a phone call or a conference. It's not exactly like that. So, uh, to an extent, obviously, all the editors and directors of the news channels, are, you know, there is a kind of government government line, and there is a meeting in the Kremlin, in fact, every day, every every once a week, uh, uh, chaired by one of uh, Piskov's deputies to sort of give the general line. But uh, the propaganda product is largely left up to the devices of the you know the editors and the producers and so on and but the telling part when we're talking about the the beginning of the war is they did not do any preparation to like soften up the population or you know really to get people prepared for a full-scale war beforehand what they were doing just before literally just like sort of 24 hours basically before the 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 the, the invasion begins there's a there's a shift you know suddenly they te- they they throw out the old playbook state media had been reporting that, that, that it's all about the, that we will never invade lavrov is saying like it's all about the diplomacy and then and then they get a signal no no sorry new message you know there are attacks on the breakaway republics of the donbass the ukrainians are attacking the donbass so it's like a little tiny little window when they hit that line and then bang out, out of the window that goes and suddenly we're like you know with the tanks rolling into kiev and, that, and so, so 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 even the kremlin's propagandists are themselves kind of almost caught out by the speed of events which tells you i think something about how the kremlin operates how secretive they are <laughs> i don't know, don't know exactly what it means but it, it, it means that they uh that they're very very confident of the um of their control over the media that they can just like sort of say oh look so yeah sorry guys like you know, like we, you know we, we told you we weren't going to invade like yesterday but we're invading tomorrow you know and you know go. Okay. Games yourselves, you know, and, and, you know, we'll just, we'll just manage it. We can just turn around this super tanker, you know, because, you know, it's our super tanker, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're in control of it. And uh, so, so it's, it's, it, 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 does demonstrate a sort of, uh, you know, paranoia uh, and also a confidence in the propaganda product.
0: Well, what else just kind of thinking about like the first six months of the war, which is what your book is about. What else do you think is, is interesting about this period of time that still today so your book was 2022. Now we're in 2023, of course. What, what else do you think is especially interesting that most people don't understand today about those first six months?
1: Well actually, I, I, I did I did so. Uh, I filed the first version. was complete on at the beginning of October of 22. And it was distributed, printed, and published uh, in the in Britain a month later, which is kind of amazing. Uh, yeah. So authors, next time, like your editor tells you it's going to take a year to like you know edit and, and set and description the book, like n- <laughs> no, they 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 lie. I promise you, they, they can do it in one month. Like they literally did it. <laughs> Although actually, a lot of it was already you know submitted and edited, sure. but like in, in a month. October 22. And then I actually, I thought I was going to do a gigantic update and rewrite for the paperback, which I submitted in May. Actually, weirdly, basically nothing really changed, (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) uh, significantly. So if your question is, what was most surprising about the the opening phase of the war? The most surprising thing was that the uh, Ukrainians turned out to be so amazingly tenacious and and smart about their about their defenses in the north and but the other thing i that people perhaps don't really appreciate is how well the thing everything went to plan in the south so we we we, we kind of tend to think that this this is all just a sort of general screw up, and you know Russia had no idea that it was bitten off far more than it can chew. they went for kiev they they Got um, you know, blown to pieces outside Kiev, and they had to retreat, retreat ret- humiliatingly. That's all true, you know, with the horrific war crimes that they committed. That's all true around Kiev. What people tend not to, or tend to sort of gloss over, was the fact that the Russian invasion from Crimea into Kherson, into and from Donbass into through 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 the through the rest of um of through from separatist Donbass into pro ukrainian Donbass, and then into Zaporozhye. and uh, that was all done absolutely textbook blitzkrieg style. They didn't you know they the regional governors were all bribed, the border posts opened up, the mined bridges were not blown up. They within four hours. They have reached the 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 uh, um, the, the, the the Dnieper, and they they've taken the Kahovka Dam. The whole there's no resistance. Uh, there's no resistance in in Kherson. There's a, there's the only real part of a point of resistance is in Mariupol, which, as we now know, you know they spend several months you know doing doing a sort of Stalingrad on and sort of grinding it flat. But uh, <clears throat> the surprising thing is the bravery and tenacity of the ukrainian resistance and the incredible stupidity and some tactical idiocy of the uh, of of the of the advance uh particularly in the north and there's a really simple answer to why it happened like that is because the whole operation was planned to essentially uh that was was planned without any real provision for overcoming Opposition. They did not think they would be opposed. You know, they 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 reckon they'd do some. they do a little bit of fighting with the you know regular Ukraine Ukrainian troops, uh, but they just assumed that it was just going to be 2014 Crimea all over again when they were not opposed, and 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 that's actually really significant because if you go to war on a delusion, you know, it's one of my chapters is called like the price of illusion. If your illusion is that the Russian speakers speakers of Ukraine are basically Russians and they're just yearning to be liberated. And that illusion turns out to be when you realize it's an illusion is when they start to resist and that's exactly what happens.
0: Well, let's talk about your, so here we are in October, 2023. Let's talk about your current assessment of the war and how things are going how, how would you how would you say things for the Russians and for the Ukrainians? How are things going right now?
1: I think they're going pretty badly for both sides, to be honest. But the bottom line is that Russia has four times more population than Ukraine, and its economy is fifteen times larger. Uh, Russia has managed to basically overcome sanctions i'm i'm not saying sanctions have not damaged the russian economy they kind of have uh they obviously have but nonetheless uh both in terms of exporting its oil particularly they're not exporting gas but they are exporting oil and importing sort of tech they need they've kind of managed to shrug off sanctions Uh, And so why do I start my answer with the relative sizes of Russia and Ukraine? Because uh, if you're actually talking about an attritional war, which is essentially what Russia and Ukraine are in now, then ultimately, if that's your dynamic, who can stay on and who can sort of take the punches, you know, who can do that sort of, you know, the relative size becomes decisive, unfortunately. Uh, And another way of saying that is if you sort of, you know, draw a a graph of quality versus quantity, in other words, you have, you know, superior Ukrainian morale, equipment, uh, motivation, command and control, intelligence, whatever. So let's say the Ukrainians have got the quality and Russians have got the quantity. They've got their sort of North Korean shells. They've got their sort of Iranian drones and everything. But unfortunately, there is a point where quantity beats quality. There is, I mean, that, the, and the uh, I, uh, my fear is that actually the Ukrainians dream of a major military breakthrough has just proved to be, in terms of their sort of big armored offensive, uh, their summer offensive. I mean, uh, to put it crudely, I mean we're we're. 60 billion dollars in with the aid to ukraine and they've taken nine kilometers roughly speaking i mean it's you know horrifically slow going far more slow going than they ever anticipated uh it's not something that's ever really been anticipated as a part of modern war because you know the, the, it's, it's not a war that nato would ever fight or could ever fight because nato is all about establishing air superiority and uh and and you have you know, uh, airborne capability. You know, modern NATO fighting is not about minefields and artillery. That's just, you only do that in a war where neither side has air superiority. It's just sort of a unique, sui so generous, you know, military dynamic. And unfortunately, the only thing that's really working for either side is, uh, is missiles. So Ukrainians have very successfully used their new British-provided medium-range cruise missiles to essentially kick the Russians out of the Black Sea port of Sevastopol. They've this week withdrawn their entire fleet to and But at the same time, the Russians have been doing the same thing. They've been also using their Iskandar cruise missiles to inflict horrific airstrikes within within Haikov province and it's pretty clear that they're going to do the same things they did last winter and that is systematically destroy all of Ukraine's electricity and energy infrastructure. So, you know, if, if, if that's the war we're in, we're not moving anywhere on the ground despite, uh, and, 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 you know, this just becomes a sort of you know rocket artillery and cruise missile contest. Then, you know, the, 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 then, you know that the Ukrainians just, you know, d- don't really have any realistic chance of attaining what they claim is their ultimate goal for victory, which is winning back every inch of their territory that they've lost to the Russians.
0: Yeah. Well, I've got. Well, first, Owen, thank you so much for all your answers to, to all my questions. Um, it's really been a wonderful interview. One last question I've I've got for you here before we wrap up. You write, uh, though we don't know how the conflict will end, we already know how it will not end. There will be no complete victory for either Russia or Ukraine. Explain that.
1: Well, uh, Russia has got nukes. Russia uh, has changed the rules of war because you uh, it's not... Iraq it's not Syria it's not Libya you know it can't just be pulverized or Serbia for that matter if Russia did not have nukes you could just deal with it like any other sort of medium-sized military power and punish it for, for 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 its violation of international borders because Russia has got nukes it's unattackable and that's a fundamental reason why Ukraine Neither why NATO uh, wants to absolutely, absolutely, at all costs, avoid a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia, that's you know, one of the bottom line first principles of the US military engagement. As we know, that's literally the first thing that Mark Milley briefed Joe, uh, Joe Biden on in his very first meeting, uh, briefing in the White House at the beginning of the war. How do we avoid a kinetic, direct confrontation with Russia? so that always means that the aid to ukraine is going to be contingent and you know there's there's no way other than the ukrainians you know giving the ukrainians the tools to do as much as they can themselves but you know you can't pile in behind the ukrainians in their defense as you know the west was able to pile in behind in, in the defense of you know kosovo albanians or kuwaitis or whatever that's just not going to happen it can't happen in this particular conflict and uh, at the same time neither can russia completely uh, really hope to make any significant advance beyond that that it's already uh, taken and has simply because the weaponry that's being supplied and the intelligence that, that that's being supplied are you know are effective at one thing and that is you know area of denial in other words if there is a russian attack then you can actually use all that nato rocketry and so on to like stop that happening so just you know on a You know, on a military strategic level, there's no real chance that you can defeat Russia because of nukes. And there's no chance that Russia will be able to fully defeat Ukraine because it has enough weaponry and has enough native support to avoid that ever happening. So therefore, you end up with some kind of species of of deadlock and stalemate, I'm sorry to say.
0: Well, I probably should have chosen a less pessimistic (laughs) question to end on. (laughs) But thank you for that. Owen, oh, if, if people want to uh, stay in touch with your work, if they want to check out what you're writing about, yeah. uh, how can people stay in touch with you?
1: It's uh, on Twitter, whatever it's called now, X, that dot <laughs> <Sure>. .omath, t h. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that it's me. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's where I post all my stuff, more or less. Wonderful.
0: Um, well, Owen Matthews, Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine, now out in paperback. Uh, go buy a copy, go check it out from your library. Uh, What an interesting story here, Owen. And thank you so much for your time today. My great pleasure.